I was on my way to the airport. When I went to Mexico, I really thought my Spanish was a lot better than it actually was. And I had a really hard time understanding the accent. And I got very far in my head to the point where I was basically useless. And this guy picks me up to go to the airport and he greets me in American accented English. And I was like, what, you seem American. What are you doing driving Uber in Mexico? And he had grown up undocumented in California. That's Alexandra Rivera talking about the time she met Victor, a man who would become very important to her life. He had gone to the U.S. when he was, I think, like two years old or something very small. He had been raised to be an American in a lot of ways. His dad didn't teach him Spanish. He was like, we're going to, you're undocumented, but we're going to get this sorted out at some point. And as he reached adulthood, he realized he couldn't go to college. He couldn't do all these things. And he was just afraid for his livelihood every time he left the house. So he decided to return on his own. And he returned to Michoacan, which is where his family was from. In 2022, 258,000 Mexicans were deported to Mexico from the United States, according to the Mexican Secretary of Interior. He had not talked to them probably ever since he was two. He was an incredibly tall, like 6'4", gay guy with a lot of tattoos. But what many returnees encounter in Mexico is not always what they expect. And the area that his family was in, he didn't realize this was a bit narco, so like he was realized that he had this family that he could not communicate with, and he was a walking target. Today on our program, producer Fernando Hernandez Becerra and I sat down for a conversation with Alexander Rivera, producer of United Stateless, an unusual podcast about what happens when immigrants go home. Stay tuned to find out what happened to Victor and what compelled Alexandra to embark on her project. I've always had a hard time explaining what my background is because not only am I mixed, I also don't have a very typical, my family does not have a very typical story of how they came to live in the U.S. The border with the U.S. and Mexico changed and the area that my great grandparents were living in became part of the U.S. The land she's referring to eventually became New Mexico. Mexico had been a country free from Spain for about, I think, 50 years when this happened. But it's interesting because in the area, people will still refer to themselves as Spanish in a lot of cases. Alexandra grew up in Washington, D.C., where her experience did not resemble the experiences of her Latinx neighbors. I grew up in Montgomery County, Maryland, and that's an area it's known as Little El Salvador. It's a lot of, ever since the Salvadorian Civil War, there's a lot of people that migrated to that area. 
And so everyone that I grew up around had this very specific story of, okay, I'm a refugee. I like I remember one person saying that they were somehow like in a like they snuck over in a truck bed, but there was like a hole in the truck and they could just see the road passing by them as they were like face down and like hoping no one caught them. And then people like there's horrible stories from the Salvadorian Civil War Um, and same with the conflicts in Honduras and Nicaragua. And like my family's story just did not resemble that at all. And there also weren't that many people from a Mexican background. Despite growing up with Mexican heritage, Spanish was not spoken at home. My dad didn't feel confident enough in his Spanish to pass it on to me or my sister. But then my mom also didn't speak Spanish and he didn't want us to have a kind of secret language that she couldn't understand. It wasn't only her dad who spoke in perfect Spanish. Her uncle didn't graduate from college because of his imperfect Spanish. He actually failed college and didn't graduate because his Spanish teacher failed him because he was like, you should already speak this. Alexandra says that people have a certain expectation when they read her name and then meet her in person. And did you find that because of your name, people were disappointed? Well, it's been interesting. I think when you are someone that has to explain your family background when you're mixed and maybe you have a name that doesn't match your face or your appearance is confusing to people, sometimes other people can be very critical of how you identify. Alexandra is white, blue-eyed, and blonde. And it seemed like, for me at least, people had a checklist of things that I needed to hit in order for them to accept me as someone with my name. The checklist includes three items. The list was a great immigration story. Second on that list was fluency in Spanish. And... Third on the list was probably my physical appearance, which wasn't going to match. So I never really checked off any of those. So people were definitely disappointed that I didn't speak Spanish. You mean native English speakers or English monolinguals? People from like any background that they're confused about Latin history. I think what I learned from doing this podcast is that a lot of people who were either immigrants themselves or first generation also encountered the same checklists and also encountered the same kind of disbelief, but it was worse from Latin people. When it comes to immigration, and it's good that you mentioned that you didn't have the strong immigrant story, but it's something that has to do with culture and how media portrays immigration and how people should be considered as recipients of empathy and or help. I think the thing that really a breakthrough moment for me was just realizing for myself that culture exists outside of the lens of oppression. (laughs) And there's like a connection to culture can exist without um, hitting every mark that every that other people do. Someone coming from. I don't know. There's at one point someone was like, someone said to me, you haven't, you're not a refugee. You haven't been through a civil war, so you can't be Latin. And I was like, 
Are you going to say that to Costa Ricans? Yeah, that's an odd comment. Yeah. You said, I think, in, in one of your uh, podcasts that you were jealous of other people who could speak Spanish. Yeah, I was very jealous. I think I compared myself a lot to them. I think I saw it within reach for me because I knew my dad could speak it. And if I could change like one thing about I my parents are amazing. I, I love them dearly. But if I could change one thing about my childhood and how I grew up is I would want to grow up bilingual for sure. When Alexandra was in elementary school, she took French. But a pivotal moment in her life propelled her to switch to Spanish. It was a revelation. I We had these ladies who cleaned the house who came over and they were from El Salvador. And I just heard my grandfather having a very, what sounded like very easy and chatty conversation with them. And I didn't know what they were saying, but I knew he never talked that easily in English. And so when my parents came home, I was like, hey, I think this is happening. I think he's forgetting English. And maybe we should start trying to talk to him in Spanish. And what did your parents say? I think that might have been a moment where my dad realized how bad my grandfather was getting. So it was like a bit of a heavy moment for him. The tricky thing was that my grandfather felt like if you were speaking Spanish to him, you were talking down to him. So he really didn't like people speaking to him in Spanish. That's a quandary, isn't it? Yeah. And when you start developing your Spanish skills, you try and have conversations with him. What happens? Yeah. So the one time, so I wound up taking a summer course at the University of Maryland for like Spanish one, beginner Spanish. And... I tried to have one conversation with my grandfather. It might have been the last conversation we had. It didn't go beyond the pleasantries. And he was like, put your father on the phone and stop talking to me. <laughs> that was, wasn't a great auspicious reward. Definitely not a Disney moment. Definitely not a Disney moment. How did you feel when your granddad just replied with that dry tone? It was really disappointing to hear my grandfather my grandfather was not a very easy person. So those kind of interactions of like very short, curt, rude, that was not super foreign in a lot of ways. So it wasn't like I was shocked, but I was disappointed because I was, he was really the catalyst for me to take this big step. And it did feel a little bit um, <laughs> like I got him a present and then he just was like, I don't want it. Fortunately for Alexandra, that wasn't a deterrent to keep on learning. We never really got to communicate in Spanish very much because he passed away my sophomore year of college. And... I didn't really do anything with Spanish for a long time. It was still a goal of mine to learn. I was still uh, very jealous of bilingual people and people who could have a conversation in another language, but it seemed very overwhelming on both a 
maybe academic level and then also a personal identity level to take that leap. So I didn't do anything for a while. I did work in a lot of New York City restaurants, so I learned, picked up some words that I didn't know, like flaca was a big thing that people called me. Skinny? Yeah, skinny. So basically, it's you go from disappointment, but I'm assuming that you had a realization that all this effort of you learning Spanish was paying off in other instances. Yeah, I could. I, at the time, at that point, I really only spoke very elementary Spanish. And then I started picking up more vocabulary just from life and whatnot. And I would, I downloaded Duolingo. I did a few of those exercises. Like I made a half-hearted attempt to learn more. Alexandra then moved to Spain. In Barcelona, she found out that she could actually get around, which gave her confidence in her adopted language. But when she started dating a Spanish translator is when she took her Spanish to another level. I had never dated anyone. I had spoken a second language. I, for whatever reason, we've never had a conversation in Spanish. Like, I barely heard him speak Spanish. But somehow that gave me the motivation to start really learning again. And then I wound up in Mexico. In Mexico, she took every opportunity to practice her Spanish. I met this woman. Her name was Alba. She was at a language meetup that the Spanish school that I was attending at the time had. And she was, we were like supposed to do a language exchange. She was going to practice her English with me. I was going to practice her Spanish. And then very quickly she was like, I really don't want to speak in English. <laughs> And then she invited me to her birthday party. And and then we I like went to her birthday party and just hung out with people in Spanish the whole night. And I I was I didn't I was really nervous going in. And then it just like got into the flow and I was like, this is awesome. How did that feel? Oh, it was amazing. It felt amazing. Yeah, it felt I I'd always had this goal, even if I wasn't always very good at going after it. And it felt like I'd really gotten to a good place with it and that I could now just make friends in Spanish, that I could have conversations where I was like even surprised that I had the vocabulary for it. So, Steve, I've seen you talking to Uber drivers in some of our reporting trips in the U.S. Yeah. As you know, I never ask someone where they're from, which can be off-putting. Yeah, you ask them, do you speak another language? And they always have all sorts of stories. But I don't think we'll hear one that will top the story Alexandra told us. The one which we started with at the top of the episode. This guy picks me up to go to the airport and he greets me in American accented English. And he was like, and I was like, what, how you're, you seem American. What are you doing driving Uber in Mexico? And he had grown up undocumented in California. He had gone to the U.S. when he was, I think, like two years old or something very small. He had been 
raised to be an American in a lot of ways. His dad didn't teach him Spanish. He was like, we're going to, you're undocumented, but we're going to get this sorted out at some point. And as he reached adulthood, he realized he couldn't go to college. He couldn't do all these things. And he was just afraid for his livelihood every time he left the house. So he decided to return on his own. And he returned to Michoacan, which is where his family was from. He had not talked to them probably ever since he was two. He was an incredibly tall, like 6'4", gay guy with a lot of tattoos and the area that his family was in he didn't realize this was a bit narco so like he was realized that he had this family that he could not communicate with and he was a walking target so he had escaped on a bus in the middle of the night to Mexico City and was just like all right I have to figure out my life and then DACA came into force six months later which would have solved a lot of his issues. His name was Victor. Yeah, meeting Victor Manuel totally changed my life. I really thought that everyone who had immigrated when they were young um, or had parents that had immigrated were fluent in Spanish, for one thing. That was always like a big part of the identity puzzle for me growing up. And to meet someone who didn't have what seemed to be that big piece also, I was I felt like I wasn't alone in that. When I went to central Mexico, which is where Mexico City is, I was just experiencing a ton of culture shock. And he described having the same level of culture shock upon returning. This chance encounter sent Alexandra down the path to create the United Stateless podcast. I'm Alexandra Rivera, and this is United Stateless. So I came back to Mexico with the um, idea that I was going to talk to a few organizations that helped returnees to try and find out his information. And I never could never track him down. But I wound up meeting all of these other people. They had just the story of returning and then everyone had such kind of wild different accessories to go along with that story that were all really fascinating like one guy in particular he got deported for armed robbery he wound up in mexico city his He wanted to go to Acapulco at first, and his parents were like, no, go visit your aunt and uncle in Mexico City. And upon landing, he realized that he had inherited an apartment building from his grandmother that was in, like, the Santa Fe area, which is, like, very, like, was a garbage dump (laughs) and then has been redeveloped and is now, like, a very nice shopping area. So, like, he was the owner of a bougie apartment building. And I was like, yeah, you're like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. That's crazy. Oh, my God. That's one of those stories that we always joke around that, oh, my God, I wish I had this distant uncle or auntie that (laughs) before dying decided to leave me all of her properties because she was a a grumpy, lonely woman or man. (laughs) 
literally this guy's story. Yeah. That story started on a light note. Yeah, but then it took a dark turn. Did he speak any Spanish? He did. He was, oh man. Yeah, he spoke Spanish and he had been a Coke dealer in Chicago. And when he, I met him four months after he'd gotten deported. Initially, that was the first time we met. And he, I think I asked him about what he was going to do with his life because he had, he was now a landlord. He had a lot of time on his hands. Um, and he was, I can't go back to dealing Coke because it's a bad idea. Also, my Spanish is not good enough. <laughs> it's a bad idea to sell uh, deal Coke. And also my Spanish isn't good enough. Yeah, he was, I think the sentiment was like, he was like, I can't really negotiate with like cartels in order to get the territory to deal Coke. There may be an argument for not having the best Spanish in the country. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, I did not get to interview him for the podcast because he did wind up getting more involved in the drug trade and he is missing, so. He's reported as as a desaparecido? Yeah. Oh my God. The United Stateless podcast tells stories about returnees, people who migrated to the United States undocumented when they were young, only to face a steep uphill battle. You tell the story in one of your episodes about Adriana, who returned to Mexico because she couldn't go to college in the U.S., but ended up doing exceptionally well in Mexico. Yeah, she's fascinating. You know, I mean, I was depressed when I got to the United States because I didn't know English, you know. How was it learning English? It was easy because uh, I had a very good teacher. Yeah, returning to Mexico for her was really the her best option. And I think that there's a number of things that helped her. I think she knew how to be Mexican in a way that a lot of the kids that return don't. Like, she knew about UNAM. UNAM stands for the National Autonomous University of Mexico. It's the most prestigious public school in the country, and it's tuition-free. She knew about some of the programs. And I think she's right in a lot of ways when she says that she wishes that more people had more access to information about how to make it in Mexico. Because I do think that there would be, if nothing else, for the returnee population who can really take advantage of some of these programs and are really starting at zero, but also for like people who think that their only option is to go to the U.S. when that might be really challenging for them in a lot of ways. And something I didn't really cover in the show is that there are a lot of uh, grassroots organizations that are run by people who have been, who are returnees and They are there to help people acclimate and learn and find housing and jobs and whatnot. And a lot of them have programs where they will help you take the test to get into UNAM. And they'll help you. Actually, one of the topics that did not make it into Adriana's episode that she 
was instrumental in helping out is getting laws changed when it comes to foreign transcripts and how they, yeah, and how they are accepted by the Mexican school system. So it can be difficult for someone um, who's deported as a teenager starting up school in Mexico, even if they speak Spanish, to get their transcript and to get credit for the, the courses and classes they've already taken. Yeah. Part of what makes your podcast series so fascinating are these different views. In the U.S., the newspapers are, it's a lot of articles about, um, gee, does it make sense that we have all these foreign students here on student visas? Mm. The United States is the number one destination country for study abroad around the world. And then as soon as they get educated, we don't let them work because there's not enough H-1B visas to go around. And it seems that doesn't make much sense. But on the other hand, for someone who is, doesn't get an H-1B visa and goes returns to their country, they often are very productive and help their country, their sending country, wherever they came from, including Mexico. And if the U.S. was completely wide open in terms of H-1B visas, we could justly be accused of causing brain drain in the rest of the world. Yeah, potentially. I think a lot of Mexicans who grew up in Mexico that I know really love Mexico. I think for returnees, I think a lot of them would go back to the U.S., not all of them, but I think a lot of them would. And I think even more, I think just having the option of going back even if they didn't take advantage of it, would take a lot of the pain away. The pain about family reunification. Yeah, and also just losing, imagine never being able to go to your hometown ever again. And just like never being able to see your friends that you grew up with in person. So Steve, the United Stateless podcast's first season tells one story per episode of an immigrant returning home. Yes, each episode title is just the name of the person with a fascinating story. For example, the Adriana episode is about an outstanding student who realizes she can't go to college in the U.S., but the other episodes go in far more directions. We asked Alexandra about the subjects in the other episodes. So Jair is a aspiring musician in Mexico City who's trying to figure out how to make his American dream happened in Mexico. Jair came to the uncomfortable realization that he was now the American in Mexico. That's an important thing to talk about because, like, you know, it's like a cultural shock. And, of course, when I got here, like, there was a lot of, th- a lot of things that I didn't understand. Sandra is a very harrowing story of a woman who <sighs> returns to Mexico and experiences the worst of it. Adriana really experiences the best of Mexico. Sandra experiences the all of the pitfalls that you can fall into when you're in a country by yourself and you don't know the lay of the land. I, I, made, I met this guy. He was 43. I was 16. Ariana is actually a woman who immigrated to Mexico initially and then to the U.S., and then is faced with the choice of 
After losing her visa in the U.S., she's faced with the choice of whether she should return to Mexico or her home country of Peru. A few months after that, in November, I got a second request of evidence, which was a little weird. And then the last episode is Selena. Oh, man, how do I explain this one? Crazy, actually, this woman. I'd had the interview. I wanted to she wanted to do a follow up after hearing Sandra's and then just drop some information that completely changed the whole interview, the whole episode. Okay, Selena is a woman who has gone on a wild ride overcoming a lot of identity and self-acceptance issues and was able to immigrate back to the U.S. I started reading a book and it's called I'm Not the Perfect Mexican Daughter. When I got to the part, can I read the quote? It says, um, this makes no damn sense to me. Some people think that shipping their children back to the motherland when they get out of control will solve everything. I, I look forward to that one. What do you hope to accomplish? I hope that it gets people thinking about a topic that I certainly didn't think about before I met my first attorney. And I hope it makes people who are going through identity issues or are potentially about to be in the situations there's life after the U.S. Why are you doing this? I think in a lot of ways, this is my first dive into my Mexican heritage in a big way. And I think I personally felt in that first conversation with Victor, I was so surprised by the level of mutual understanding we had with our issues towards our identities and our backgrounds and how similar they were. It seems to me so fascinating so important. You've really found a an area where I wasn't aware of any reporting, in-depth reporting about what it's, these lives are really like. So what are your plans going forward? So I would love to do more episodes. If anyone listening to this is, has a story that they'd like to tell me, get in touch. I, I actually am looking into doing a season in El Salvador, which is a very different situation than Mexico for a variety of reasons. But it's super fascinating. I I grew up with a lot of people from there, so I have connections in the country that I can tap into. And that's actually a situation where there's a lot of hostility towards returnees on a really big level. But there's also a big push to get them to come back. I want to end with a a confession. After listening to uh, one of your episodes, I think it was Alex, I think it was your second episode. Yeah, we didn't mention that episode on purpose. My confession is that I discovered that I drive a Vatomobile. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You can tell your dad I've got a white Ford F-150. Oh, he'll automatically I'll send you a picture. Yeah. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, he had a red one when I was growing up. Yeah, he's a fan. 
I think you do such a great contrapuntal thing between the the hardest and the the bright parts and the dark parts, and and that's one of one of the things that makes it so interesting. Thank you so much for having me. This is this was awesome. Yeah, and thank you. I'm so happy that you enjoyed it. And yeah, just like my one goal for this was like, if someone beyond my parents listens to this, I'm like, I'll be happy. <laughs> If you could send a message to your fellow Americans, what would it be? Yeah. When someone grows up in the States, they're in a lot of ways American. Like culturally, they're American, maybe with some outside influences. But I think what a lot of people think is that this whole transition is for folks returning is super easy um, painless, like everyone is just going to fit right in like a puzzle piece. And it's really hard. And also, also leaving the U.S. is not a death sentence. At least going to Mexico <laughs> is not a death sentence. And Mexico is a an amazing country. It's a complicated country, but it is way more uh, good than harrowing. If you like our podcast, please share it. Send it to a friend and be one of our reviewers on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll be helping to spread the power of bilingualism to do good in America. My thanks to members of the America the Bilingual team who worked on this episode, Fernando Hernandez, who wrote this episode, and his production house in Guadalajara, Mexico, Esto No Es Radio, which also provides sound design and mixing. Also to Mim Harrison, our editorial and brand director, and Carla Hernandez at Daruma Tech, who manages our website. Thanks for listening. For America the Bilingual, this is Steve Levine.